please turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We're almost finished with the Psalms of Ascent, aren't we? The, the year is 1780. Location, New Jersey. And in a little town in New Jersey, there was a little church. About 70 members. Now, the pastor loved this church. The the pastor loved the people of this church. And this church, though though it had its faults, like like every church, this church was faithful to the gospel. It preached the gospel. It, It did evangelism. It was orthodox. It was, by any kind of, by any sort of definition, it was A true church. But remember, it's 1780. And the conversation that everyone's having outside of the church is revolution. Right? In in the field, at the workplace, around the kitchen table, everyone is talking about revolution. Revolution against the king of England. And so it doesn't take long before this kind of national conversation outside of the church to make its way inside of the church. And eventually the pastor knew he had a big problem on his hand, doesn't he? Forty members want revolution and are supportive of the, of the American Revolutionary War. And yet 30, 30 members of this church, well, they're loyal to King George. Actually, the, the tension gets worse Those who are loyal to the king begin to interpret those who are seeking revolution in sort of moral categories, saying that, oh, those people who want revolution are actually unchristian. That's morally wrong. You've heard the old adage that you should keep politics out of the pulpit. Well, here's my question to you. What happens when politics comes to the pews? And so here you have half the church wanting revolution, the other, church, the other half of the church wanting to stay. Awkward. Tension. It's dividing this little church. There's a sort of toxic level of disunity in New Jersey in 1780. I mean, just imagine sitting next to someone singing, sitting under God's word when they're against the war when your son just died in that war. So let me just ask you, hypothetically, of course, would you stay in that church if half of them were for and half were against the war? Or would you say, no, what we need in, in New England right now are patriot churches and loyalty churches. We need those, those churches that are, that that kind of Christians are wanting to be loyal to the king and those that want revolution from the king. Should what's going on politically in 1780 in New Jersey split a church? Well, I think one of the gifts the historian gives us, any historian, is the reminder that 
no season is unique. Every season has various things seeking to disunify a church. I mean, the, the, the sort of foe is different. It, it takes different forms. But every generation, disunity comes in various forms, in various ways. Today we're going to talk about unity. I, I think unity is a bit like Bitcoin. Okay, this is going to be good. I thought of this by myself. This is, copy, this is copywritten by me, okay? Okay? Unity is like Bitcoin. Everyone's talking about it. No one has the slightest idea what it is. That's good, huh? So what is unity? I mean, how, how, how do you get unity? Where does it come from? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do you know when you're in a sort of setting and it's unified? What does it feel like? Is there electricity in the room? Do you get goosebumps? Like, what's going on? What is unity? How do you get it? This is the, um, our, our second to last psalm in a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Now, you're probably getting bored with me telling you this, but, but once again, these, these kind of 15 psalms, they were collected together as pilgrim psalms meant to be collected together and sung by pilgrims as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem at various times for various festivals. It was a sort of a discipleship program to be sung for the pilgrim. And this morning's psalm, it's a wisdom psalm. And it's a wisdom psalm all about unity. All right, the big idea which will be behind me is simply this. And we'll sort of break it down in two parts. Unity is a blessing. Unity is a blessing flowing down from God. So if you will turn with me to Psalm 133. I'm going to read all of it. All three verses. This is a song of a sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, Psychologists tell us that there are sort of two ways you can help someone change. You can focus on negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement. So you could just point out the vices in something, or conversely, you, can, you could kind of illuminate the virtues in something. And I think when we talk about unity and disunity, we can do both of those, or one or the other. So, so think of Paul in 1 Corinthians. I, I, I taught on that about two years ago, right? Paul, like, out of the gate, starts attacking this church in Corinth for their disunity. He sort of points out all of their disunity, and it's sort of a, a negative um, you know, pointing out of negative such that they would then fight for unity. That, that, that's one way to do it. But as I, I read this, did you notice that this is not a negative view of disunity? It's, it's positive. It, it's, a, it's a positive meditation on unity. And look, look, starting in verse 1, right? Uh, starting in verse 1, we learned that this is a psalm of David. Now, the Puritan John Calvin believed that this psalm was written by David right when he brought the nation together and he was enthroned in a sort of unified country of Israel after the death of 
Saul. Maybe true. But one thing we do know for certain is that David, I mean, he experienced a lot of disunity in his life. Think of David and Goliath, right? David defeats Goliath. And what do the people chant? They chant, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. You don't think that just frustrated Saul? Just think of all of the the conflict and the tension between Saul and David. And you have to believe that we can't be naive. Much of it, or at least some of it, was because of Saul's jealousy and envy. I mean, isn't that how disunity happens? Often? Because of envy? Because of jealousy? And so David literally is in the wilderness. And there is disunity in the land. There's a civil war. Actually, it's worse than a civil war. It's a holy war. Because each side, Saul and David, each side believed that God was on their side. Because we we do this from time to time, right? It's not enough just to to say, I have a principle, I have a conviction. We, We sort of enlist God in our principled militia and say, God's on my side. God wants me to do X. And that's what was going on in David's time. Both sides said, yep, God's on my side. Disunity. And so Paul doesn't say, I'm going to point out the sort of disunity that took place in his life. What Paul does is he gives us a positive meditation on the goodness, the pleasure, the reality and experience and sort of the the goosebumps of unity. Look there in verse 1. David uses two descriptive words to describe unity. He says, behold, right? That's, that's like, get your attention right now. Behold, pay attention, look. How good, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Good and pleasant. So let's just break that down, right? That first word, good, right? What, what, what that is saying is that unity is morally, objectively good. It's, it's a call to, to be unified out of duty because it's an aspect of God's character. Unity is good, objectively good, divinely commanded as good. But it's not just good. I mean, that, that would be sufficient for us if we found out that unity is good. But, but unity has a second part, and it's pleasant. It's delightful. It feels good. And for David to sort of make his point even more clear, he uses two similes, right? In verse 2 and verse 3, right? So the first we read in verse 2 says, it, right? Unity, right? Unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on, on Aaron, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, that's a weird simile. Can we just be honest? I mean, just imagine if a friend of you said, okay, what is unity? And you said, dude, unity, it's good and it's, it's pleasant. And your friend said, okay, well, well, can you describe what unity is? And you're like, you know, unity is like taking some cologne and you dump it on your head and it runs down your head, it kind of gets in your beard and then it runs down to your collar. I'm guessing your friend would be like, I ain't want none of that. So, so, so what's going on with this, sim- this simile, this, this sort of, uh, um, explaining of what unity is. Well, let's just kind of dissect it. We learned that unity 
It's connected to sacred oil. Now, how do we know it's sacred oil? Well, look who it's connected to. Look where the oil is coming on. It's coming on Aaron, the first high priest. So oil was connected to the tabernacle. And this oil used in the tabernacle, it was fragrant. It smelled amazing, sweet, and it was very rare. Actually, you were not allowed to even attempt to make the type of oil that was used for priests and the tabernacle outside of the priests and the tabernacle. It was that rare, that special. The oil was dumped on priests to set them apart for the divine work in the tabernacle. And what this is saying is that unity is like that special oil. Unity sets a person apart. Unity sets a people apart. It's special. It's rare. It's unique. It's, it's sort of a, a, a picture of blessing. It's just an extravagant blessing, isn't it? That flows to God's people. Now, now, that's the first simile. Let's look at the second. Verse 3. Once again, it's, it's formed the same way, right? It, meaning unity. Unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, we, we need to know some geography in order to make sense of this, right? Mount Hermon is to the north of Jerusalem, on the sort of the outskirts, the boundary of Israel. And it is the tallest mountain in Israel. And it's interesting that it's this beautiful, big, snow-capped mountain. Think Mount Rainier, okay? It's, it's, the, it's the Mount Rainier, and it was famous for its dew. Because surrounding Mount Hermon was an arid and dry climate all around it. And so what would happen is that dew from that mountain would come, and it would land on the kind of area surrounding Mount Hermon, and it gave life to the area surrounding it. Trees, foliage, bushes, just all of this stuff. It was all due to the dew that would come off of Mount Hermon to the land surrounding Mount Hermon. And so here he says, unity is like that dew coming and rolling down all the way to Zion, the sacred hill where the temple was, where the pilgrims were there celebrating and worshiping. So, so, so you can put these two Similes together, and, and you sort of have the same evocative point. Unity, it's a blessing. Right? You, you look there in verse 3, right? Unity is called out as a blessing. It's a, a sort of sweet aroma. It's, it's life-giving. It's, it's rare and unique and sacred. Unity is like that crisp air that you smell and you breathe in on a mountain. That's what unity is like. Now, many of you know what it's like to be at a Christmas party or at a Thanksgiving Day party, and it's awkward, and there's tension, and there's conflict. You've all experienced that, right? Right? Uncle Bob's there, right? Everyone's got an Uncle Bob. If you don't have an Uncle Bob, it's because you probably are Uncle Bob, okay? (laughs) Okay, right? You've all had that experience where there's tension and conflict, and it's horrible. You, you, you almost just like kind of gut your way through those dinner parties, don't you? You just try to get through the Thanksgiving because there's so much tension and disunity and conflict. You, you know what it's like to have a dinner table with your family and the kids to just like throw a f- tantrum about the food. It's miserable. But you also know what it's like to sit and have dinner 
with someone and it's just peaceful and there's joy and there's laughter and you're not watching every word. It's just all at peace and it's like electricity is in the room. You've had that experience, my guess is. Laughter, joy, pleasure in food and in conversation. No, no anxieties. Unity is like that, right? There's a call we see here in this morning of our text for unity, right? Unity specifically in verse 1, in the house of God. Do you see, see that language there? How, how good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. Right? That, that's, that's family language. The, the images of the family of God. Brothers and sisters coming together all to worship God, to live in community. That's what we have at a church, right? We come together even to have a sacred meal. But, but what if you have disunity even in the household of God? Well, let me just encourage you. If you have conflict with a brother or sister in this church, or I could even broaden it because the same is true. If you have conflict and disunity with anyone inside or outside of the church, go and seek and be unified with them. And let me just say, not just out of duty, right? Not just because it's good. I think a better reason to seek to be unified and to seek to not be in conflict with someone is because your happiness depends on it. Disunity is a poison. And we've all experienced that when you just avoid that person because it's awkward, you don't want to get into it or whatever, so you just kind of walk around the room or whatever. But, but you also know what it's like to just be able to sit next to someone and laugh and enjoy and worship together. Yes, we are to, we're called to seek to be unified, to not have conflict with people because it's a, it's a duty, it's a call, it's a command of God. But I think an even better way, maybe a more alluring way, is that your happiness depends on it. It's pleasant to be in unity with your brothers and sisters. And let me just remind you, this happens even when the other person doesn't respond very well. Very early in ministry, I remember I had conflict with this guy on staff. I, I could never really put my finger on it. But there's just always conflict. And so on three different occasions, I went to him. I, I, I confessed that which, I, which the, sort of the Holy Spirit convicted me of. And so I, I confessed my sin. But there's always tension. That he never asked for forgiveness he was always frustrated at me, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. But let me just tell you this. Because I did that, because I pursued unity, because I pursued to, to bury the, the spiritual hatch, hatchet, I promise you this, that I was free, and I was happy, and I was joyful, because I made an attempt. I did what God called me to do, which was to seek the unity of my brother in Christ. And I could worship next to him, not in bitterness, not in frustration. I could worship next to him because I held nothing against him. I had no resentment or bitterness. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The immature of all of Israel coming together, worshiping God in unity, hearing from God's word. Encouraging one another, reminding one another of their mission to make disciples. It's, it's amazing. They are dwelling in unity with one another. 
You see, the, the, the reason I want us as a church, and I would say as any church, but particularly our church, the reason I want us to be in unity isn't just because it's a, it, it, our, my conscience is bound to the word of God, which says be unified. That is a reason. But honestly, I want us to be a church that is unified because I want to fight for your joy and your happiness. Because when a church is unified, a church is joyful and happy. And you walk in there and you're like, I want what they are serving. They like each other. They enjoy each other. There's laughter. The reason to pursue unity in yourself, it's a selfish reason, I think. But it doesn't have to be a bad reason. It's to maximize your joy in this life. Uh, someone uh, told me today that at the women's conference yesterday, one of the questions that the speaker asked was, why don't you pray to the Holy Spirit to illuminate if there's someone you have conflict with? Well, that's a good question. That's a dangerous question. A dangerous prayer, I might add. But that's a really good and biblical thing to pray about. And once that's illuminated, then do something with it. And maybe it's just confessing it to the Lord. Unity, it's a blessing. Second, where does it come from? Where in the world does it come from? Well, uh, years ago, uh, I was at a Portland Trailblazer basketball game, okay? If you don't like basketball, just stay with me for a second. I apologize. So I'm at this playoff game, and we needed to win this game, all right? And so I'm sitting next to this guy I've never met before, and by what comes out of his mouth, I only assume he's not a Christian. He was big, tatted up. Long beard, I'm certain that he drove in on a Harley Davidson, and I was wearing really skinny jeans in, in my, like, hipster years, okay? We didn't have anything in common by the looks of it. And then Damian Lillard hit a game winner, and no joke, I hugged the man. <laughs> what, what we were experiencing in that moment was a form of unity, wasn't it, right? You got men, women, and children from all likes, uh, walks of life coming together because of their shared devotion to the trailblazers and just chanting and singing. We all stayed after and just celebrated. But that, 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 that's a form of unity, right? And, and in many ways, unity always comes from outside of us, all right? There's always something outside of us that unifies a people or a community. And it could be anything, right? A hobby. Uh, it, it could be something you, you like. It can be politics. It could even be an enemy. But, but something out there creates a form, a, a sort of community, sometimes a pseudo-community, around that thing. But, but look once again at our psalm, verse 1. We have brothers, which once again isn't just talking about gender. It's, it's talking about the people of God. This is family language. And they're united and yet, let, let us not forget that these pilgrims, as they come to Jerusalem to worship God, they come from different tribes. They come from different regions. They come with different likes, dislikes, hobbies. They even came with different dialects. And yet they came together as one, even though in one sense they were far from one. So in our text, what is it that binds them together? Was it their a, a sort of shared enemy, like the Philistines, right? 
We are bounded together because we hate the Philistines. No, 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 no. Was it their shared history that bound them together, right? They were God's special people. Is that where their unity came from here in our text? A mere sort of spiritual nationality? No, that's, that, that's not where their unity comes from. See, the, the, their unity came not from looking inside themselves or looking even horizontally. Biblical unity doesn't come from looking, look, looking in and out. It only comes by looking up. Just, just, just look again at these similes, right? David uses these similes to describe unity, but notice that, notice that there's, there's a striking similarity in them both, right? The emphasis in verse 2 is on the oil and the oil's trajectory, right? It's coming up and down. Right? It starts above and it flows down Aaron all the way to his collar. And then in verse 3, you've got this dew. And it comes from the heights of Mount Hermon all the way, which is up north, all the way south to the, some littler hills on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So the question we sort of have to ask is, who anoints with oil? Well, in the Old Testament, ultimately it's God. God's the ultimate one who Sets apart a people. God's the ultimate one who anoints. And then who brings the dew? Well, do you you remember in the wilderness? There was dew and then manna from heaven. God too brings the dew. It's God. And then we get to the end of verse 3 and it's extremely clear. From there the Lord has commanded the blessing. What is that blessing? We've already said the blessing is unity. Who commands? Who brings? Who's the source? Where's the origin of unity? God. When I planted a church with a friend about 10 years ago, this is what I was told. This is how you plant a church, I was told. You, you find out who you want to reach, what population, what community. And then you cater to their preferences. So if you want to reach hipsters in Portland, you grow a beard. You wear flannel, right? You have kind of folky music. You wear a fanny pack or whatever, right? (laughs) You figure out what they like, and then you cater to their preferences. And the reason is pretty simple. People want to go to church with people who look like them and like the things that they like. There's just a sort of natural thing about that. And so you people want to go to the, uh, a church where the style of music is their preference. And so this is what I was taught. Figure out who you want to reach and then cater the entire church to that population. Thereby, you will reach them. Which makes perfect sense in a sort of consumeristic, materialistic, economic way, right? That's just like economics plus ecclesiology equals this strategy. Find who the consumer is, find what the consumer wants, and then bind them together by a consumer good. That's not how unity is described here in, in Psalm 133, is it? This unity, it centers on God doesn't send on the brothers, doesn't send on the house, doesn't uh, uh, rest on the household of God. It's just that this blessing, this unity, it's all centering on God. 
God brings this blessing. And David was well aware of this. Do, do you remember in 2 Samuel 5 when finally the, the nation comes together and David says, no man could have done this. No man could have brought this nation together but God. No human being could ever have brought together the nation, but God did. Now, how does God do this? Well, I think our psalm's pretty clear. You've got to kind of squint a little bit, but I think the text is really clear that the blessing of unity would come through a priest. A priest like Aaron, only much greater. One who would usher in everlasting life on Zion. A priest who would come down on Mount Zion. A priest who himself would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Who would usher in unity between God and man. A priest who would conquer disunity between humanity and God by himself being conquered by death. A priest who would come down and live among his people and die for his people. Who, who then would be the center of God's people's worship. He would be the center of their unity. They would be the Christ ones. They would follow the way. They would be Christians. Unity is eschatological. You see, unity is finally and fully revealed in the world to come. Unity begins sort of in Christ, but it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ at his second coming. The book of Revelation describes a vision of the, the sort of unifying aspect of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. You, you, you all know this, right? You've got this throne room scene where John in a vision goes up to the throne room of God and he sees a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation. A diversity that no one has ever seen in the same room. All together centered around what? God. And the blood of the lamb. And Psalm 133 is just a glimpse of that unity. It captures just a, a little glimpse of it. Revelation 5 celebrates the unity that Jesus purchased by his life, death, and resurrection. It's, an, it's sort of a, a vision of the church triumphant. All centered around what God has done through Jesus Christ. We, to use the technical term, are the church militant. We're not the church victorious. But Psalm 133 is, is applicable to us. It's, it's a taste of what we can experience one day in the world to come. Because unity is, by nature, a supernatural work of God that is brought on by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Where he brings people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together, all under the banner of Christ's blood. Right now, it's so easy to be unified, even in the church, around second or third-tiered things. Right? It's easy to kind of unify a church around politics this day. Really easy. But that's not the idea that's on the pages of this psalm. 
This is supernatural. It's supernatural like, like this. Just think about this. Imagine a zealot and imagine a tax collector. And imagine you forming a small group with those two. Right? Simon the zealot wanted to overthrow the government. Levi the tax collector was in league with the government. Can you imagine starting a small group with those two people? Pretty difficult. Probably wouldn't want to show up to small group. A lot of tension. And yet Jesus says, hey, I'm going to start this movement with 12 men. One of them, or at least two of them, have vastly different politics. So how did he have unity? How, how did both of them stay in there? And the answer was, they had something so beautiful, so glorious, so sacred, so good, so amazing at the center of their life that they put down their political swords because Christ was all that they wanted. And that's what we find in Levi and Simon. They found Christ and they said, he is bigger than any other thing. That's what I want. I'll follow him. Often when I do premarital counseling, you know, you, you sort of have to talk about gender roles. And I'll point out that when God made uh, Adam and Eve, right, he made them dissimilar. But, but part of them being dissimilar is part of the purpose of marriage. Such that if they were identical, you would miss the entire purpose and meaning of marriage. Because let's, let's be honest, right? If you're, if you're married or even if you dated someone, it, it's their differences that annoy us. And if you've ever had one of those, a conflict, you, you realize and you inevitably think in your mind, I just wish my spouse thought like me. Right? Can I get an Amen. I mean, every time my wife and I take a personality test, we get the exact same answer. We are complete opposites. And so there's moments when I just go, I just wish we were more similar. It'd be a lot easier. Well, the same is true for the church, right? It would be a lot easier if all of us thought alike. It would be really easy if all of us had the exact same tuning of our consciences. It would be wonderful if we all liked the exact same book, the, our favorite theologian, we read the same blogs, we followed the same people on Twitter. How much easier would it be if that were the case? But you see, the entire purpose of the church would then be redefined. Our diversity, and I'm talking about something bigger than ethnicity, but it's not less than that. Ethnicity, economics, age, preferences. I mean, there's lots of categories of diversity and our diversity uniquely displays the glory of Jesus Christ. I, I loved how one author put it. He says this, get rid of diversity and the church is going to become easier. But the church will forfeit its power. And as it relates to our psalm today, let me just say that not just that, but that the church will forfeit its joy. You see, the, the unity held out to us in this text is nothing short of John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer when he prays for the unity of the church. But that unity only comes by the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. Like, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I am very pessimistic about unity in America. 
I'm not saying you don't fight for it. I'm not saying you don't pursue it. I'm just very pessimistic about it, and I think it's sort of out of reach. But, but let me just tell you something I'm very optimistic about. I am very optimistic about unity within the church. Why? Because John's not the only one who's seen the heavenly vision. John's not the only one who went to the throne room of God. I, too, have been to the, to the throne room of God. I, too, have seen this heavenly vision of Revelation 5. I, too, have seen a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all surrounding Jesus Christ and worshiping him. I, too, have been to the throne room of God. I've seen it. I've tasted it in part, even as I've tasted it here. And it's a reality. It will take place. We just got to start getting used to it. I don't think heaven's going to be that awkward family reunion, although sometimes we think about it that way. And we're like, ah, I just wish they weren't here. No, we're going to be so preoccupied with Jesus that that's where our gaze is going to be. John Calvin said that he thought David wrote this after that the nation was unified. Maybe that's true. Let me give you an alternative hypothesis. I wonder if David wrote this after Bathsheba. After David's sin, lust, he took another man's wife, then murders. And even though he confesses and repents, we learn, God says, the sword will never depart your house. He had a glimpse of unity for a season, But because of his sin, disunity, conflict, no peace. I wonder if David wrote this in reflection on what slipped through his hands. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. What is that blessing? Look at the last two words. The blessing is everlasting life. History tells us that many left that little church in New Jersey. I think that's a shame. Let me read the first verse once again, and then let's pray. It's a shame because how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in harmony, dwell in unity. It's like life forevermore. Let's pray. God, we, um, we come to you knowing that it's because of our sin that we are disunified. It's our, it's our sin that, that brings, breeds so much conflict in our lives and in the lives of people that, we, that are in our lives, Lord. We, we, we pray, Lord. We, we pray that we would be more and more enamored by you. We pray that we would center our unity, not on so many of the things that, that, that create disunity, but we pray that we would center our unity on you, God, and you alone. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the timeliness of this text. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.